0: You're listening to a
1: selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Devastation doesn't even begin to describe what awaited Andrew McGinley when he arrived at his Newcastle, County Dublin home on January 24th last year. His three children, Connor, aged nine, Dara, who was seven, and three year old Carla, all dead, suffocated by their mother, his wife of nearly 20 years, Deirdre Morley. Yesterday, she was found not guilty of their murder by reason of insanity by a jury of 10 men and two women in the Central Criminal Court. After yesterday's verdict, Andrew McGinley called for an investigation into Deirdre's diagnosis, treatment and medication prior to the tragedy, carried out as a matter of urgency. Our legal correspondent Orlo O'Donnell was in court for the evidence and verdict and we'll talk to her shortly. But first, in his own words, let's hear from Andrew McGinley. In this clip, he tells Miriam O'Callaghan when he first learned that something was terribly wrong that day in January 2020.
2: My neighbours had rang me uh, to just say that um, um, they had collapsed outside, but I, I didn't know about the kids. I I have, I have to say I assumed they were with the childminder. Uh, so after after a little while, um, I rang uh, Pauline, our childminder, and when she uh, when she said they weren't with her. I looked over at the house, and uh, the house was in darkness. I kind of... You're automatically, yeah, you you start dreading. Yeah, I was just hoping, when I opened the door, that I would just hear the television, and they'd all be sitting in watching a film, or... But, yeah. Yeah, when I... I opened the door and, and I found Connor first of all and then uh, the fire brigade had been attending the scene outside and uh, they came in with me and uh, we found Darren and Carla then as well.
1: Andrew McGinley talking to Miriam O'Callaghan. Orlo Donnell. it was it was a, a short trial by the standards of most murder trials, but it was harrowing. You were there. Will you take us through the trial, the evidence and its impact?
3: Yes, well, the case was described in court, Mary, as a tragedy of unspeakable proportions and no one who heard the details would disagree uh, that uh, moment where Andrew McGinley uh, came home not realising anything was wrong I suppose is one of the, the, the hardest details to take in. Uh, we heard during the trial that he was on the phone to his wife during the day um, you know talking about the time that he'd be home speaking about he was going to awake after work and he'd be home after that and he had no indication from her that anything was wrong let alone uh, the catastrophe that awaited him when he got home. Uh, we heard about Deirdre Morley's state of mind and the terrible details of what she did on that day in great detail detail and on multiple occasions even during the three short days of the trial. Uh, we heard her interviews with guardy, her interviews with psychiatrists, details of her medical records going back years but particularly going back to 2018 when her depression began to get particularly serious. And I suppose what was particularly harrowing uh, apart from the details of what actually happened were the mundane details of family life uh, which would be recognised by anyone who heard them even on the morning of the killings. Uh, Ms Morley was preparing ham for that evening's dinner and also what we heard were the, the normal instantly recognisable nature of her worries as a parent and these were worries that every parent might have but she had amplified and catastrophised them and turned them into examples of the irreparable damage she believed she'd caused her children and uh, we heard that in the week leading up to the tragedy she'd kept her seven-year-old son off school because he had a cough and the night beforehand even after she tried to administer morphine to her children to sedate them um, and that had failed, she was still giving her son Kalpal for his cough and taking him into her bed to sleep. We heard about the television programmes the children were watching um even as their mother described something clicking in her head that morning and deciding to put her plan of killing herself after killing them into action. Three-year-old Carla was watching trolls in another room. The children were bickering over Dara's Hulk and Iron Man toys. Uh, when she collected Connor from school, she let him buy a roll. She gave him his 15-minute screen time when he came home. And screen time was something she'd become fixated on. She was feeling overwhelmed by parenting. She'd repeatedly told psychiatrists. Um, she felt the fact that they had too much screen time was her fault for letting discipline slide because of her illness. Even things like Connor not being able to ride a bike, Dara not being able to swim, Carla not being toilet trained. They'd been blown up by her into catastrophes and failures that she was responsible for. And when her seven-year-old son Dara told her that she'd ruined his life by ending his screen time, to her that became a signal that she needed to act.
1: Now, the question for the jury was whether Deirdre Morley was guilty of murdering her three children or not guilty by reason of insanity. And they deliberated for for more than four hours. Yes, four and a half hours, almost four and a half half hours. And there
3: was, I suppose, some Surprise at the length of time it took. It was quite long for a jury in in a, a trial where the the verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity is agreed on by prosecution and defence. And uh, they were told on a number of occasions by the judge um, that they had to give a verdict in accordance with the evidence they had heard and that the evidence all went one way. To find her not guilty by reason of insanity, the jury had to find after hearing expert medical evidence that she was that Dear Morley was suffering from a mental disorder and that she should not be held responsible for the murders because she didn't know what she was doing was wrong or was not able to stop herself carrying them out. Now the expert evidence in this case was unanimous that Ms. Morley did have a mental disorder and she fulfilled those two criteria in terms of being um, eligible for a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity. It probably seems uh, slightly strange to people as well that such a case came before a jury, but that is set out in the legislation. The ultimate decision is one for a jury to come to after hearing expert medical evidence and um, some legal experts have suggested that the, where there is this agreement between prosecution and defence experts, maybe it might be more appropriate to have such a case tried before a judge on their own or perhaps several judges
1: rather than putting people through the uncertainty and ordeal of a jury trial. There are questions, Orla. Her husband, Andrew, has questions about her treatment. What has he asked for?
3: Yes, Deirdre Morley had been struggling with her mental health really through her entire adult life, but it became particularly bad in 2018. And then in mid-2019, she was admitted to St. Patrick's Hospital as an inpatient for four weeks. Uh, Towards the end of that year, she was deteriorating again. But the court heard that uh, Andrew McGinley had not been fully aware of the details of his wife's treatment and medication for her mental health because especially because she was a highly qualified nurse and she dealt with many details herself. For example, only after uh, these tragedies had occurred did he discover that the, the doctor in clinic she was attending as an outpatient had written to St. Patrick's Hospital in late 2019, seeking her readmission. But the people around Deirdre Morley thought she was actually getting better. Um, she didn't tell people how severe her symptoms had become. Uh, and while, she believed, while they believed she was getting better, the, the psychiatric services were, were uh, reporting that she was as bad as they'd ever seen her. Now, given the differences between what he heard in court and what he knew or didn't know beforehand about his wife's condition, Andrew McGinley is looking for a full investigation into his wife's diagnosis, treatment and medication uh, in the run up to these events. And he wants HSE Mental Health Services to carry out this investigation urgently. Uh, He said this would help them understand the insanity that took the lives of Conor, Dara and Carla. And particularly, he wants the family to be included in this. Uh, In his interview with Miriam O'Callaghan last night, he said that some of what they had heard from the two expert witnesses during the trial, the psychiatric witnesses, was new information to them about his wife's mental state and he wants answers and he said he wants to prevent any family going through the suffering that their family went right, through. Just, just briefly Orla uh, what happens now to Deirdre Morley? Well, under the mental health legislation, she's been uh, sent back in her case to the Central Mental Hospital because she has been there since shortly after the killings. Uh, The case then comes back before the court at the end of this month and the judge is due then to get a report outlining whether or not she needs to remain in the Central Mental Hospital, whether or not she needs continuing inpatient care. Essentially, she will be there until such time as doctors decide that she is well enough to be released.
1: All right. Orlo O'Donnell, our legal
3: correspondent.
1: Thank you.
0: Day five of the ransomware attack on the HSE's IT system. More appointments cancelled today for patients and a much more limited service for those who can be seen. We're going to talk now to Richard Corbridge. He was Chief Information Officer with the HSE from 2014 till 2017. In other words, he was in charge of the IT system during those years and he is now CIO with Boots UK. Uh, Richard Corbridge, good morning.
4: Good morning. Thank you for and having And you're very
0: welcome to Morning Ireland. Now, when you were in your post, you had to deal with a, a, an attack called WannaCry in that time. How does this one compare, do you think? Is this one worse?
4: This one does feel worse, yes. WannaCry in May 2017 was a similar ransomware attack, but it was more about... Crypto ransomware, which means you leave the data where it is, but you make it unaccessible by the people that need it This is what's known as a zero-day attack where it's an attack that's happened on the day that the the issue is discovered So it isn't a, a weakness that wasn't prepared for it's a weakness that wasn't understood and the data has been taken away
0: And there's been speculation that the older software system that the HSE has been using means it was perhaps more vulnerable to attack Would that be fair?
4: I don't think it's just the HSE. Healthcare systems across the world find it difficult to invest and keep up to the highest possible point of protection. And that's because it's not just about machines that you see when you're seeing clinicians using those machines. It's machines that's connected to key healthcare solutions, blood analyzers, CAT scanners, x-ray machines, when you need to replace the operating system to keep it up-to-date, to keep it safe from a cybersecurity point of view, at that point you've also got to consider the replacement of things like X-ray machines, CAT scanners. You can run into millions of euros when you need to keep simple IT systems up-to-date in healthcare systems. And that becomes really really difficult to stay on top of. The HSC has an amazing IT team that tries really hard to do that and learnt so many lessons from WannaCry that it does apply. Trying to keep it up-to-date is really challenging.
0: But would that not be regarded as an investment?
4: It should be. It should absolutely be regarded as an investment. You know, since 1854, we've been trying to keep hospitals clean because we understand that the cleanliness is, is how we keep people safe and, and well. Cyber sanitation, cyber cleanliness is something that all systems need to invest in as well. It just is very expensive and it's hard to show the benefit of it as a patient benefit when there are so many other needs for the financial impact that that needs to be applied.
0: Is the technology that we use here, that the HSE uses, is it older than that, say, for example, that's used in the NHS, a a system that you know very well too?
4: I think it is. It certainly was as I moved away in November 2017. But investment can and does continue to happen. I think the team that are in the HSE is a team that tries so hard, is underinvested in, is a smaller resource than perhaps it ought to be for an entire healthcare system in the NHS. They have invested in, in making sure that the CQC is a regulator for cybersecurity, that it has the information governance toolkit, that NHS Digital has a, a, a role that is head of cybersecurity across the whole NHS. All these things are still in their infancy in the in the HSE, and therefore perhaps this will be the moment when, when truly everybody has to rally around and, and make the plans that have been there for some time really, really come to fruition and happen.
0: Tony O'Brien, the former Director-General of the HSE, was interviewed on radio yesterday, and he was saying that less than a quarter is spent on IT systems and cybersecurity here <coughs> than in other developed countries. Are we seeing the consequences of that underinvestment then?
4: I believe that is the case to some degree, yes. I think we've seen in the NHS and, and in the US as well where recommendations have been made around between 3 and 7% of budgets of healthcare systems ought to be sent, spent on healthcare IT, particularly you know, in the last 12 months when we've relied so heavily on virtual healthcare IT systems. When we're in the recovery that we're trying to be in from the pandemic, being able to access data, expose that data to patients who are trying to book, being able to use new modern ways of delivering healthcare is so important and therefore moving that investment up beyond the 3% and towards 7% is is really, really important.
0: And would the hackers be aware of the potential vulnerabilities of the HSE system?
4: I would guess so. I also think that the hackers, in this case, would look at many, many countries' healthcare systems and target them. It would appear from what You can find out currently that the Department of Health was also sort of probed, and that would lead many people to suspect that this was quite a wide probing of health system technologies to see where the vulnerabilities existed to expose this zero-day exploit. I think that's really important to understand is that this perhaps isn't a a target on the HSE and is more a target on where are the holes in the systems across perhaps Europe, perhaps wider, find those holes and make use of them.
0: And you mentioned there the Department of Health also having been targeted on Thursday. They successfully prevented the attack on them. Would you have expected some contact, though, between them and the HSE to warn them of of a potentially imminent attack and to allow action to have been taken?
4: I would imagine so, yes. Certainly in 2017, one of the reasons Ireland was so successful in its protection against WannaCry was the NHS warning the HSC that this was coming. So in, in the NHS there is a, a function called, almost amusingly, the bat signal, which goes up from digital health if there's any implications across the whole NHS that show there is some kind of cyber threat landing. I would hope that that did happen from the Department of Health to the HSE, but given the timings of of late at night, given the timings of systems, and given the sheer breadth your your previous reporter mentioned, 85,000 entry points being told by the department there's a cybersecurity issue coming, it's then very difficult in a few short hours for that small team to protect 85,000 entry points um, from such a, a threat.
0: And they are currently working now to get the system back up and running. In, in your experience, are they rebuilding it from scratch? Is that what they're doing?
4: I would hope not. I am certain from the way that team works, they, the understanding they have of their systems, both new and legacy, that they'll be looking at how they can bring the relevant systems that are most important up first. So being able to administer patient booking, being able to protect clinical records, get clinical records in front of, of clinicians and being able to do that. My, I would imagine their plan is the robust plan that they would have around business continuity. I think what we all learn from this, though, is it is no longer if we're attacked, but when. And that fast-moving business continuity plan across all systems, healthcare really particularly, needs to be one that can swoop in much more quickly than we're seeing here. And that we saw in the NHS during WannaCry as well.
0: And would they have to wait until everything is in place, everything is clean and everything can be opened up again? Because all the while we are witnessing the impact on patients and on patient care. So could they do it perhaps sooner rather than later or should they wait?
4: I think think they will absolutely be trying to get the key administrative systems, the key clinical information systems up, maybe on a, a hospital by hospital, region by region basis so that they can start to deliver healthcare using that digital foundation that's now so necessary to healthcare. I believe that. You know they understand now where the risk is and the protection for that will have been implemented certainly in our reaction to WannaCry back in in May 17 we were able to make sure that patching had happened by the Tuesday after the Saturday that, that, that WannaCry landed in Ireland and I think it's that kind of agility and speed that I know that team is so capable of with the, the skills and and leadership that they have.
0: And the other concern, of course, is patients' private data. How can the abuse of that be minimised, or can it?
4: It's really difficult because we don't know how much data, we don't know the details of the data, you know, in, in news stories that you've put out already this morning. We are talking about how how little we know about the type of data that has actually been taken as as part of this ransomware attack it is now in the hands of those organisations. No large organisation, no any organisation wants to pay a ransom for anything and therefore there is now a real and present risk that that data is going to be exposed.
0: Really good to talk to you this morning. Thank you for your time and your insights. Richard Corbridge, Chief Information Officer with Boots UK, but he was in the same role with the HSE from 2014 until 2017.
5: After 11 days of fighting, more than 230 Palestinians are dead and thousands injured. And also 12 Israelis dead, with hundreds injured. Then last night, news of a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Dan Williams of Reuters News Agency has the latest developments. Dan, tell us how this ceasefire came about.
6: Well, it seems to have been the result of intensive, um, behind-the-scenes, uh, mediation. Mediation, obviously, because Israel and Hamas did not directly engage. Hamas is the, the main fighting group, uh, the Islamist group that controls Gaza. So this was helmed by the United States, but I think much of the heavy lifting was done by Egypt, uh, which put into effect, at quite short notice, a, um, uh, a ceasefire as of 2 o'clock in the morning.
5: The question is whether the ceasefire will hold, and what happens now?
6: Well, it seems to be holding so far. I think neither side has an interest in, uh, in reigniting this. It's worth remembering, however, that things can change very quickly. It is a Friday. Friday is the Muslim prayer day, and in Jerusalem all eyes will be on the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, which arguably ignited, in part, the conflict in Gaza, though it's 50 kilometers away. Things can change. However, I think everyone realizes that this could really could have been another Gaza war had it continued and the devastation uh, within Gaza is extensive. Hamas will have to reckon with that. In Israel, I think there's a degree of surprise at the ferocity of the Hamas rocket the rocket attacks on the cities and towns, uh, including uh, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. I think there's also a degree of shock at the sense that public opinion worldwide has turned uh, in part against Israel.
5: The um, Israeli military were briefing uh throughout the past 11 days that there was more to do, that they had uh, specific targets uh, that they were seeking to wipe out Hamas's capability to send fire rockets at Israel. So what did the 11 days of air attacks achieve?
6: Much of it is hard to judge, uh, not least of the Palestinians. Uh, Even even down to the death toll of combatants, uh, the Palestinian authorities in Gaza are not confirming. According to Israel, it killed 160 combatants, including Um, quite senior military commanders, not the political echelon of Hamas or Islamic Islamic Jihad, but uh, the the military commanders there. Israel also says it's extensively damaged the rocket capacity and what it calls the metro, which is an underground tunnel and network and bomb shelter network in uh, the Gaza Strip. Um, So according to Israel, the capabilities have been set back by years, potentially. I think time will tell. And I think there's a sense on the Israeli side that perhaps the military objective was exhausted. Perhaps not all the military targets were achieved. Perhaps Israel rushed into using uh, contingency plans, secret contingency plans, because it may not have anticipated that this trading of blows would escalate the way it did.
5: The situation in Gaza after 11 days of bombardment?
6: Tens of thousands of people are displaced from their homes. Gaza was already destitute. Now the situation is far worse. There's going to be a lot of talk um, of uh, how to rehabilitate the Strip. Uh, The U.S. President Joe Biden said yesterday in announcing the ceasefire, or welcoming it half an hour before it went into effect, he said, among other things, that Washington, in coordination with the United Nations, would work on bringing in humanitarian aid. But he also said something interesting that they would work to guarantee that such aid bypasses Hamas's military capabilities, that it's not diverted uh, to allow Hamas to replenish its rockets, to rebuild its underground uh, control, control, command and control systems. It's hard to know how this could be done given that Hamas controls Gaza. Uh, Biden also spoke about using the situation to bolster Hamas's, uh, uh, should we say, uh, more secular rival, the Palestinian president of the West Bank. He's widely accepted in the international community. In the past, he has had peace talks with Israel. Hamas refuses peace talks with Israel. Um, but again, he, he he governs within the West Bank, a long way away from Gaza, has very little standing and credibility within Gaza. So I'm not quite sure how those mechanisms are meant to work.
5: And what next for Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli uh, Prime Minister, and his attempts now to uh, form a government?
6: Well, he's been, form- he's been heading a caretaker government, and you might want to call it a caretaker emergency government, a wartime government, over the last uh, 11 days. One of his fiercest critics in the outgoing government, the previous government, his defense minister worked very well with him. It was quite obvious that their partnership uh, was actually improved thanks to this crisis. Now, two of Netanyahu's rivals were tasked before this crisis with forming an alternative government to him after a- an inconclusive April 23rd election, their efforts now seem to have sounded completely. Uh, they fell apart because of this crisis and differences of opinion on ideology, etc. So it could just be that the clock on their mandate will run out. And eventually um, this uh, situation will go back to the Israeli voter and there'll be a fifth election in something like two years.
5: Dan Williams of Reuters News Agency. Thank you for that. It's-
7: Now, as it gets warmer and brighter and with people being encouraged to spend more time with each other outdoors, more and more people are taking to the water and buying up floatables and inflatables to bring with them. Lidl has included water safety advice from the RNLI along with its water sports products and the Lifeboat Institution is asking more businesses and organisations to help too. Lisa Hollingham is with us. She's the RNLI's Water Safety Delivery Support Officer for the Ireland region. Hi Lisa, I, I read where the French sports shop to Catherine say they've sold more surfboards in Ballymun than anywhere else in the world. Are you surprised by just how much interest there is here in boards, kayaks, canoes and, and the like?
8: Good morning Gavin. Yes I did read that news alright and I suppose in one sense we're, we're happy to have all these people out on the water but obviously with this increase of people on the water we need them to be aware of the risks that are associated with being out there. And that's why we have been working with the likes of Decathlon and Lidl and using these opportunities to promote our local ambassador scheme where people can sign up via the website, get access to our water safety materials and share them in their community to help keep people safe this summer.
7: Because you haven't had much chance to go to schools and clubs this year to do water safety talks because of the virus. So what's your main advice to people who are using floatables and inflatables?
8: So... Our key safety messages would be to have a means of calling for help on your person. uh, A mobile phone in a waterproof pouch. Check the weather and tides before going out and especially with any inflatable um, sups or kayaks. Do not go out if there's an offshore wind because that will blow you out to sea. Always wear a buoyancy aid or life jacket. Go with a friend. Tell someone where you're going and when you expect to be back. In an emergency, dial 112 or 999 and ask for the Coast Guard. And a a particularly strong message this year would be to leave inflatable toys at home. They're not suitable for the beach or inland waterways. And that's the airbeds, the lilos, the inflatable dinghies um, and the blow up donuts and unicorns.
7: Yes, many people will remember the story of Ellen Glynn and her cousin Sarah Feeney rescued after 15 hours at sea with their paddle boards last summer off the coast of Galway. And they talked about how their flotation devices played a big part in saving their lives.
8: Yeah, particularly with paddle boards, you you need to make sure that you are connected to your board with a leash. So should you fall off, that you don't get separated from the paddle board and you have that flotation device to help keep you safe.
7: Lisa, thanks for speaking to us. That's Lisa Hollingham. Uh, She's the RNLI's Water Safety Delivery Support Officer for the Ireland region.
1: The Irish Wheelchair Association has begun a campaign to highlight that people who own wheelchairs can now apply for homes to suit their needs on their housing applications. This is something that hadn't been possible before. It follows a recent report by the Ombudsman which highlighted the lack of accessible social housing for people with physical disabilities. Our social affairs correspondent Alva Keneally has this report.
9: It's like I'm pissed during in my own home. You know, I can't go out, so I'm looking out the window.
10: Before COVID-19 led to lockdowns, Dee Hoey says she was already in lockdown. It's
9: like your life
10: is on hold. You're waiting on someone to decide what your next plan is. Before she was in this position, Dee had an active life and she worked full time. But 15 years ago, at the age of 30, when she was newly married... Everything changed as a result of a brain tumour. I
9: was working full time and playing camogie um, in the gym, totally active, um, driving the car, the whole thing.
10: And suddenly you find yourself in a total different world.
9: Yeah, yeah.
10: It's like I've been locked down the whole time. Dee is now separated from her husband. She can't work. And even though she's eligible for the housing assistance programme, she can't get anywhere to rent that is suitable for her needs. Some places, um, the lift might up working. You can't get upstairs
9: to your apartment. There's a big step into apartments. Some bathrooms are tiny. So you wouldn't be able to get into a bathroom. The kitchens are tiny. So like an
10: afterthought. So it's it's very difficult. Dee has been on the local authority list for the past four years. In the meantime, she's living with her ex-husband's parents. I actually have nowhere nowhere to go. Um
9: there's no room in my parents' house. Like where I am at the moment. It's a gravel driveway. We're not on the bus route. So there's no shops around It's a very rural area. So I'm on people to come and take me out of here. I can't just jump in the car and go.
10: I'm, wi- I'm waiting on someone to help me. Dee is not alone. Aoife McNichol is a PhD student at DCU. She's stuck in transitionary accommodation at the Irish Wheelchair Association Centre
11: in Clontarf. I'm on the Dumsey City Council housing list uh, waiting uh, to be called for an accessible apartment, but... Yeah, generally it's been quite tough to find uh, suitable, accessible accommodation. I think there's, there is a lack of options um, for disabled people, um, especially if you're a wheelchair user. It's
10: estimated that 5,000 people registered with a disability are waiting for social housing in Ireland. But for the first time, a person in Ireland who has a wheelchair can apply for a wheelchair-livable home on their housing application. Up until now, this has not been possible. Tony Cunningham is Director of Housing with the Irish Wheelchair Association.
12: People don't apply because they think, what's the point? You know, if you try and go to the private rental market even now, much less social housing, there's nowhere to be got um, if you have a disability in terms of accessibility for a house. So the new application form, it's as a result of lobbying. It's encouraging people with disabilities because they have a responsibility too to, to think about, think housing, you know, think ahead. Um, And I'm also speaking to, we say, family members and maybe organisations who support people with disabilities um, to think about their housing requirements, not just now, but in the next five years, in the next 10 years.
10: But why has it taken until now to include a box indicating a disability on local authority housing application forms? Claire Feeney is senior executive officer with the housing agency. Yes, it took a while, um, but I suppose there was a lot of
1: various different um, competing factors that had to be considered. What were they? Well, I suppose, obviously, if you're going to be wheelchair-livable, the units are going to have to be larger. There is a cost implication. Um, obviously, also, we only can deliver within our own um, the social housing st- structure initially. So we're relying on the local authorities and the approved housing bodies to come on board with regard to that as well.
10: In the meantime, Aoife and Dee continue to wait for word. Dee has contacted TDs, councillors and ministers, but to no avail, and the pressure on her is evident.
9: I've done all the letters and emails and phone calls. Anything I can think of.
10: Sorry to upset you.
9: That's (laughs) great. This whole situation is upsetting.
1: And that was Dee Hoey ending that report from our correspondent Alva Keneally.
9: (laughs)
0: At the height of the War of Independence, the IRA attacked and burned the Custom House in Dublin, then a centre of British administration in Ireland. The attack was carried out on the direct orders of Sinn Féin President Eamon de Valera. He wanted a propaganda coup that would get the war onto the world's front pages. Well, he got his coup, but the IRA lost five men and over 70 were taken prisoner and four civilians died in the crossfire. Elaine Keogh reports.
13: On a normal day, thousands of people swarm across the streets around the Custom House. They are hurrying for buses, trams or trains. Most will never give a thought to how, during a May lunchtime a hundred years ago, these very streets echoed with gunfire and grenade explosions as flames destroyed the great building on the riverside. But why now, with the war raging, but also talk of peace on the horizon? The decision to go ahead with an attack on the Custom House on the 25th of May 1921 came after Eamon de Valera returned from America. He did not like guerrilla warfare but realised there was value in publicity. David McCullough, biographer of Eamon de Valera, says he proposed an attack on either the Custom House or Beggar's Bush Barracks.
2: He proposed this at a meeting uh, early in 1921 to the GHQ staff. And he made these two suggestions. Oscar Traynor was the commander of the Dublin Brigade. He went off and he looked at it. Uh, Beggars Bush was ruled out fairly early on because it was so well defended. So there are a set on the customs house. And the idea was this would be a, a big operation. It would generate lots of publicity. It would be reported right around the world. Uh, and it would generate publicity and propaganda for the Irish cause.
13: About 120 IRA volunteers would enter the building and spread paraffin, oil and petrol around all the offices, torch the place and be gone before the security forces could intervene. Fire stations would be seized beforehand to stop the fire brigade reaching the fire too early. They would evade capture by using the crowds of civil servants fleeing the building as cover. Anthony Flynn was in the IRA and took part in the burning of the custom house. His son Liam recalls what his father's job was that day.
14: The job was to take in cans of paraffin into the custom house and uh, gather all the, the, the papers, especially all the papers, the files, put them all together and then spread the paraffin round and then get ready for setting fire. This All this was, was taking place somewhere about two, one o'clock and the whole thing wasn't supposed to take more than a half hour anyway.
13: Things didn't go exactly to plan when there was a mix-up over the signal. Historian Liz Gillis.
11: Only one person was meant to have a whistle and that was Tom Ennis, who was the man that was actually in charge of the whole operation. A whistle blast was heard. It wasn't Tom Ennis. Some of the volunteers ran to Ennis and said that their their room wasn't prepared, so he said, get back, complete it. But that caused a delay, and that delay meant that they didn't leave the building at 120, which was when they were meant to. In the meantime, word had gotten to Dublin Castle to the authorities that something was happening in the custom house.
13: It was at this point that the major flaw in the whole operation was exposed, The IRA had no plan B, to fight their way clear if there was serious opposition, and that opposition was not long in arriving. Once the army and police were alerted to the scenes at the Custom House, they had the place surrounded before the volunteers could get away. None of the raiders or their scouts carried more than a pistol, a few bullets and some grenades. The result was never in doubt. Five IRA men and four civilians were killed, and four auxiliaries wounded. As he tried to leave the custom house, Liam Flynn's father Anthony put on a dust coat to look like a member of staff.
14: The staff were lined up outside, you know, and senior members of the staff had to identify everybody who was, you know, all the staff. Some they knew, some they didn't know, and he was one that he didn't know. <laughs> so, um. He was one of the hundred then who was taken away to Abbey Hill and did their spell in Kinmainham.
13: The building burned for days. Fire Brigade historian Laz Fallon says there were so many active volunteers and sympathisers in the Dublin Fire Brigade that their plan that day was to accelerate the speed of the fire, not to stop it.
12: When the firemen arrived... They split into two groups, one of whom made down to the Liffey as an open source for the fire engines to feed water. Others went to the hydrants. Now, there's no world records being broken in the length of time that has taken them to do this. But at the same time, within the building, you have the IRA and citizen army members. So what they do is they carry the tools of the destruction of this building in with them. They go in with axes and sledgehammers. And why wouldn't they? Because that's what firemen are bringing in to fight a fire. They're using those to smash open other areas inside there. They're taking cans of paraffin that haven't been used and they're spreading the fire through the whole building.
13: The operation garnered the international publicity that De Valera had wanted, but many believed it dealt a near fatal blow to the Dublin IRA. Liz Gillis says pension files indicate over 270 men and a number of women were involved in the custom house burning. And this takes from the argument that it was a huge blow to the IRA in the capital.
11: The second battalion of the IRA in Dublin was really affected because they were the ones that were inside the building and a large number of the active service unit and the squad were arrested. However, there were still 150 men at least outside that got away. And um, there are accounts from guys where the active service unit was regrouped. They could have had four active service units because so many guys wanted to join that full time unit. They, they were told to increase the attacks. The IRA did change their, their MO. And um, so rather than using, you know, 30 or 40 men to attack, you could use two or three men with a grenade attack, a sniper attack and so on.
13: It had been a strategic decision by de Valère to carry out a large operation in Dublin, but did it achieve what he wanted? David McCullough again.
2: It certainly achieved lots of publicity. The problem was, militarily, it was a disaster. It led to a number of deaths of of very uh, active volunteers. More importantly, it led to the arrest of dozens and dozens of active members of the Dublin Brigade. So much so that the Dublin Brigade was almost out of action for the crucial last six weeks uh, of the War of Independence. It is 100
13: years since the burning of the Custom House and outside the building is a memorial to the five IRA volunteers who lost their lives as a result of it. As the National Director for Fire and Emergency Management in the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage, Sean Hogan works in the Custom House.
15: I think it's important
12: that we remember history we remember the price that people paid we we sometimes take things for granted and sometimes we can forget the generations gone before and the sacrifices that they made they had families they had wives they had small children I uh, read the accounts of the staff who were here and you can, you can see the trauma for people who were here who were caught in the middle of this, caught between, as we all are, there's a huge fear of fire and you can read that piece, the fear that people had that they were going to be engulfed in this big fire here uh, in the building on the day.
0: Sean Hogan from the Department of Housing ending that report by Elaine Q. and on this coming Saturday RTE News Online will have an extended blog by our Centenaries editor Shane McElhatton on the destruction of the
1: Custom House a guaranteed worth read. Nobody who watched it will ever forget the Diana interview and the young BBC reporter Martin Bashir who persuaded the Princess of Wales to sit down for the tell-all BBC panorama interview. But now, more than a quarter of a century later, a new report says Mr Bashir obtained the interview in a deceitful way by using fake documents to win over Diana's trust, documents which damaged her relationship with those around her. The report by Judge Dyson also found the BBC fell short of the high standards of integrity and transparency which are its hallmarks. Princess Diana's two sons, William and Harry, released separate statements on Thursday evening in response to the inquiry findings. William read his statement to the media explaining the genuine personal pain the interview had caused his family and his late mother.
15: It is my view that the deceitful way the interview was obtained substantially influenced what my mother said. The interview was a major contribution to making my parents' relationship worse and has since hurt countless others. It brings indescribable sadness to know that the BBC's failures contributed significantly to her fear, paranoia and isolation that I remember from those final years with her. But what saddens me most is that if the BBC had properly investigated the complaints and concerns first raised in 1995, my mother would have known that she had been deceived. She was failed not just by a rogue reporter, but by leaders at the BBC who looked the other way rather than asking the tough questions. It is my firm view that this panorama programme holds no legitimacy and should never be aired again.
1: Prince William speaking there. Jim Watterson is media editor for the Guardian newspaper. And clearly, Jim, the fallout from that interview nearly 26 years ago goes on. Uh, Let's talk about what the report says, first of all. What does it say about the reporter Martin Bashir and the methods he employed to secure the interview?
16: Well, it's pretty damning for people who haven't sort of followed the exact uh, detail of what's going on here. Essentially, Martin Bashir tried to get to Princess Diana through her brother, and he did so by convincing the the brother that uh, people around the family were selling information uh, to newspapers or being paid by the security services. And to do that, he mocked up a series of bank statements. Now, the crucial thing was that originally, Princess Diana, once she was introduced to Martin Bashir, wrote to the BBC and said, look, you know, I, I chose to do this of my own free will. And what's the second... And that essentially was taken at the time by the BBC, is that, well, she said she was fine with it. And what this investigation has done, it's gone back and it's concluded that the fact that he only gained that introduction through uh, duplicity means that sort of essentially the basis on, what she, on, on which he was convinced to talk was unfair.
1: And Jim, what did the BBC know then? What did his producers and editors know about the methods that were being used?
16: So this is the really extraordinary bit in that the very broad brush outline of what went on, that fake uh, bank statements were used, was largely known by the BBC at the time. Um, And and one of the things I think is interesting is this is almost sort of relitigating things that happened in the past and going back into them and concluding that whereas before an institution like the BBC could brush this under the carpet and that the royal family was sort of so scared of the media that they wouldn't keep pushing at it. Um, the difference this time around is that people aren't willing to uh, to brush these things under the carpet, and the attitudes, both in the media and in the royal family, towards the media have changed. So this this is strangely sort of a case of people coming back and looking at things anew, 25 years on, and going, "How on earth was this ever cleared?"
1: That was a very hard-hitting statement from Prince William. We also had a statement from Prince Harry talking about a culture of exploitation and unethical practices. Is there further fallout for the BBC?
16: Well, there was one phrase in that clip you just played that really stuck out, which was Prince William using the phrase rogue reporter, which is what was uh, what the News of the World used to describe... Um, it's uh, royal editor Clive Goodman when he uh, hacked Prince William's phone back in the mid-2000s. So the fact that they're using that language very purposely to draw comparisons between the BBC with its sort of uh, much more staid reputation and a, a tabloid that had to be shut down for phone hacking is is pretty telling. Um, where this goes next is very intriguing. I think it does just reflect the fact that the royals feel that whereas previously they had to take all the coverage and deal with it, Harry has shown the way and his brother's following that you can actually stand up to this and actually the public quite like it when you take on the media. Uh, and it shows a lot about the declining power of hmm. media in some ways. Uh,
1: and Jim, just briefly, what about Martin Bashir? I mean, his career uh, went from strength to strength after that interview
16: yeah i mean he 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 had enormous success around the world um, he then crucially came back to the BBC as religion editor a few years ago um but has been signed off sick um even before uh, this story came back into the news and uh, I don't think you'll be in a he'll be on screens anytime soon. He quit the BBC on health grounds a week ago.
1: has he made any comment
16: uh he has uh, insisted and I think sort of nuanced that sort of diana was Uh, comfortable with it at the time and, and sort of pointed out elements of it but it's a very damning report for him personally and very hard for him personally to come back from because the emphasis is on his failings.
1: Jim Waterson of the Guardian newspaper
5: thank you. The HSE, as you heard in the bulletin, is warning people attending hospital emergency departments today that if you're there for non-essential care reasons, you could face long delays. Patients requiring urgent care will be prioritised and the HSE is asking the public to consider all all care options instead of going to A&D if you can and that includes injury units, GP out of our services and local pharmacies. All of this uh, six days after the cyber attack that forced a shutdown of the HSE's computer network and for more on how healthcare workers are coping on the front line, we're joined by Dr Vida Hamilton who's the HSE National Clinical Advisor for Acute Operations and she's also consultant in anaesthesia and intensive of care at a university hospital Waterford. I imagine it's been a very stressful six days Dr Vita Hamilton
17: uh, Indeed it has Onya, uh, and um, I think it's really important that we're very clear here this is a major disaster 90% of our acute receiving hospitals are substantially impacted by this cyber attack and this uh, uh, impacts every aspect of the patient's care a patient who arrives in the emergency department doesn't have a medical record number. We're not able to find their chart. We're not able to look up their lab results or other investigations that they have done, had done previously. So we know nothing about the individual in front of them. And this really impacts uh, elective care, planned care, where you're looking at the trend in a patient's disease process We have no way of assessing the trend of the patient's clinical condition. So we have no chart. We don't even have a medical record number. We're issuing major incident uh, emergency record numbers that when all of this is sorted will have to be reconciled with the patient's actual medical record number. We have no stickers. So over the weekend, last weekend, people were handwriting patient labels. We've now put in place a workaround that was developed in Waterford, um, where they're using standalone laptops attached only to a printer to generate uh, stickers. And this uh, was shared with the other hospitals uh, and and that's in place in, in all hospitals now. In order to do a lab test... We have to handwrite the blood uh, form. We have to get a runner to bring it to the lab. It has to be manually uh, entered into the analyzer. That's assuming the automatic analyzer is working. Some blood tests are having to be analyzed by the manual technique. Then the result has to be manually manually transcribed and then with a runner brought back to uh, where the patient is You can see how there's substantial delays and also risk for transcription error in this process. To do an X-ray, the devices that take the scan are working. But in order to read the scan, a doctor has to go from the emergency department, look on the device that's taking the scan to to read the the X-ray. And uh, that means that that device can't be used to take another x-ray while it's being um, read. So incredibly slow, incredibly laborious. If there's a critical um, uh, blood result, and a critical blood result is one where, you know, there's substantial risk of harm to the patient if it's not dealt with within 24, 12 to 24 hours. Um, the lab phones uh, that result. But if the patient has been transferred up to the ward, Where are they? We've no electronic uh, patient list. So we're using whiteboards and uh, markers to identify where the patients uh, are allocated within the hospital. And uh, we're rolling out a system of standalone laptops uh, attached to, to displays with Excel spreadsheets as a workaround. There is enormous risk in the system. And because and and everything has to be done so slowly and so carefully to try and mitigate that risk. So we're asking people to be really, really patient with us. In Crumlin, for example, they have a person, a, a, a staff member dedicated in a greeting role who meets a person and their family presenting to the emergency departments, explains the situation to them so that they can have their expectations managed and understand we're used to delays in our healthcare system. You know, queuing is, is fairly normal for us. This is not normal queuing. Blood tests that normally take an hour turnaround are taking six to eight hours in some centres. So we're really asking the public to, to free up the space in our acute hospitals for people with emergency healthcare needs. So we're looking for the clinical prioritization is emergency, urgent. Uh, uh, time-sensitive care and people whose care needs can wait or can be dealt with in another healthcare environment uh, we're asking them to to seek that alternative or, or to wait we don't want people who are having heart attacks or who are having strokes not to have emergency access to the healthcare they need uh, to save their lives and to prevent them from having disability. So, you know, if you have emergency healthcare needs, of course we are open. We will prioritise you uh, on first presentation. And um, but if your healthcare needs are ones that can wait you will be waiting. And and we do ask you to be patient with our staff. It's very difficult for everyone. It's difficult for patients and it's difficult for staff uh, trying to work in this environment. Uh, The... uh the HSE talking about
5: possibly two more weeks of contingency arrangements. I can only imagine what the strain of this and indeed the fear of this, the fear of not being able to deliver medical care safely to patients because you don't have all the ITT backup. What that's like after 15 months of a pandemic?
17: Uh, you know, the stress uh, for for people is enormous. And look at our, our health care workers are amazing. You know, everybody's been uh, working together to put in uh, place workarounds so that we can manage uh, patients as safely as possible. But, but there is enormous clinical risk uh, and that will accumulate with time because all of these temporary charts, all of these results that are handwritten will have to be reconciled with the patient's notes afterwards. So there's going to be substantial recovery period uh, too. We've been having, um, you know, a lot of group meetings where we're sharing learnings and uh, workarounds that are effective. Um, We have in acute operations a dedicated team to help support us in rolling out, you know, patient-facing workarounds. Um, And, and, you know, our our healthcare workers are are being uh, inventive, effective, and they're being safe. But but they are working in a very high-risk environment. And the way we can minimise that risk is to focus uh, the resources that we have available to us to people who need them most critically and and to try and defer until things are back and more functioning, um, and things that can wait. So we are asking the public uh, to be patient with us. Um, Everything we do in medicine is a risk-benefit ratio. If you've got a really emergent healthcare need, then the risks of of operating in a in a suboptimal uh, environment uh, uh, are much less than the risk of not getting the, the healthcare that you need. Uh, but but if your healthcare needs can be deferred to a less riskier environment, that is much better for you. Um, so we are asking uh, people to bear with us and um, you know be aware that our staff. Um, You know, this is uh, it's a it's a unique cruelty after 15 months of pandemic. And of course, COVID is still with us. So on top of all of these difficulties, we're still having to deliver with COVID and non-COVID care pathways so that we can maintain that safety uh, in our acute hospital system.
5: Well, our best wishes uh, to all involved in this difficult endeavour and thank you for talking to us this morning. Dr Vita Hamilton, who is the HSC National Clinical Advisor for Acute Operations.
1: He's been dubbed the voice of a generation, a title he says gets in the way. He won a Nobel Prize in Literature and this Monday, Bob Dylan turns 80. Ken McCormick reports on Bob Dylan's legacy and how his music, words and artistry, reframed songwriting, remain culturally relevant and permeate our world.
11: How many roads must a man walk down Before you call him a man
12: Some call him the voice of a generation.
11: How many seas must the white dove sail
12: Here's Bob Dylan's take on that.
7: I think that was just a term that can create problems for somebody, especially uh, if someone just wants to keep it simple and write songs and play them.
11: The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind.
12: This was part of a 2004 interview with NPR, National Public Radio, in the United States.
7: Having these colossal uh, accolades and uh, titles, they, they get in the way.
12: Born on May 24th, 1941, in Duluth, Minnesota, Robert Allen Zimmerman came to prominence in the 1960s.
18: And it's hard, it's hard. It's
12: His songs were anthems for the civil rights and anti-war movements.
11: Gonna fall. And you know, at a
5: time of very great social protest, this was the guy. Because for young people, there was a, a place for an artist to communicate something that was different than everybody else, and Bob Dylan was the man. I'm talking here early and mid 60s.
12: Ortiz Dave Fanning says Bob Dylan's place in music history is rivaled only by the Beatles. Once
11: upon a time, you'd so fine. Do the bumps of time in your prime.
5: You. There was great, as they say, social protest, huge changes in music and he was the one who was the front of it all and he brought it right through into the 70s and 80s and I must say, like, if there's one person I have to look to in terms of the greatest of all in rock, I'd look to Bob Dylan in the same way as I say that his importance is rivalled only by the Beatles.
12: Just like Dave Fanning, RTE lyric fm's John Kelly is a Dylan fan.
11: Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me.
12: The first time I heard him was possibly Mr. Tambourine Man on the radio, but it really, when I heard him properly, was when I was a teenager and I got my hands on. I think it was bringing it all back home, and I thought, here's here's a world I can get into.
11: John is in a basement mixing up the medicine I'm on a pavement thinking about the
12: government the man in a For John Kelly when you talk about Bob Dylan you have to look back to his folk days and more importantly his ability to retain access and use what he heard read and experienced.
11: Come gather round people wherever you roam He went in
12: there to that folk scene and, and learned a whole lot and took it with him and he seems to have this extraordinary mental capacity to remember everything that he hears, everything that he reads. He seems to be able to access it. He seems to be able to go and get it whenever he needs it and use it and play with it and then add his own thing to it and invent something of his own. Ann Powers, an NPR music critic and a contributor to a new anthology called The World of Bob Dylan, says Dylan reframed songwriting.
19: He connected... The historical expansiveness of the folk tradition, the daring avant gardeism of the Beats, and the attitude, the sexiness, the constant need for renewal and novelty of rock and roll. And in making those connections, he did change the game for every songwriter who came after him.
12: In 2016, this happened.
9: Nobelpriset i litteratur år 2016.
12: Bob Dylan Dylan was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature
9: For having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition
18: Poet Katrina O'Reilly The citation making reference to the great American song tradition is in a part a nod to that tradition as well as a recognition of Dylan's individual achievement
12: Ann Powers says Dylan's words are culturally relevant and permeate our world.
19: Young people who don't even know who Bob Dylan is as a person know his songs even if they don't know the reference they're hearing is from one of his songs. And to me, that is how a culturally relevant writer is defined. His work has permeated our world. It's about, is that work in our lifeblood? And I think it is when it comes to Bob Dylan.
12: As he turns 80... What's Bob Dylan's legacy? Again, Katrina O'Reilly.
18: Probably an important aspect of his legacy is highlighted by material he released last year. And one of those songs is called Murder Most Foul. It's a dark day in
7: Dallas, November 63.
18: And it referenced the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963. And it then segues from that into a kind of litany of his own cultural reference points. And I think what he's doing there is making a plea for the importance of art and popular art and saying that it has something to say and it has a serious social impact and that it matters. And I think that that's what Dylan's legacy uh, ultimately will be.
11: I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm.
1: And that, of course, was Bob Dylan's shelter from the storm.
0: You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.